0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Before I start this morning, or I guess as I start this morning, I'm going to ask Doug to pop a picture up. So yesterday, sorry, last Sunday I began my sermon sharing that two years ago to the day I was in India. I stand corrected. Uh, I I got this in a text message from our brother Daniel and with the date stamped on there, February 13th. I flew from India the day before. I was wrong. I should have double-checked. But anyways, there's another picture uh, with the three of us. I had the joy of being there. So, so two years ago last Sunday, I was not where I said I was. Um, close, but not quite. So if you can open your Bibles to uh, Philippians 3, verses 1 to the uh, first half of verse 4 is where we're going to begin this morning. Have, have you ever had an experience where in one moment you are moving in a particular direction and then in a split second suddenly you're going in a radically different direction years ago uh, i finished bible school while i was in bible school i was hired at a church in abbotsford as their youth pastor part-time they didn't ever have anyone on staff before in that role And when I graduated uh, at the end of my fourth year, they hired me full time. And so I served for a number of years. Another friend of mine who was at CBC uh, finished his degree as well in youth ministry. He got hired by a church just down the road from Abbotsford in Chilliwack as a youth pastor. And so there were occasions where we did things together with our youth groups. One of the things that became uh, a regular thing was that the, the, the boys in his youth group and him would play roller hockey against the boys in my youth group. We would get together generally in church parking lots and not uh, play a little roller hockey. That was a big thing in the 90s. How many of you have ever rollerbladed? Some of you? Very few of you. Okay. It's like ice skating, only without the ice. And it's like roller skating, except instead of four wheels, you, well, I guess you have four wheels, but they're in a line. Anyways, it's, it's skating. So one particular time, we actually rented an arena, it was summertime, the ice was gone, and so we were playing in arena. We were very excited. It was pretty, pretty cool to do. And in the course of the game, I, uh, I remember one point I was in my end of the, the arena, and I, I was rolling, and I turned to move up the arena and looked back where one of the kids in my youth group was about to pass the ball. I didn't have it yet. And as I turned around, suddenly there was Rob, my friend, at least until then, he, he hit me so hard. Like, I didn't have the puck. It was an illegal hit. And, and not only that, we weren't playing full contact. And, and I had some things to get over. He hit me so hard. I actually had a filling in one of my molars pop out. I had been rolling this way, and suddenly I was going in a radically different way back and landing on my backside. Now, I could use that to illustrate... Lots of things like forgiveness and how we should resist temptation and things like that. Uh, but but I, my point that I want to get you thinking about is, is this, this sudden shocking change of direction. Because this morning we come to a text where that's really what we're going to experience. Uh, the, the text is going to open up with Paul saying to the Philippians, uh, My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And, and then just moments later, he's going he's to say, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And we're going to kind of have, have whiplash going, where did that come from? Right? We're moving in this way, rejoicing in the Lord. Watch out for those dogs. So that's the text we're coming to this morning. And that might be a bit of our experience of a s- sudden, shocking, unexpected change of direction. Before I read the text, let me remind you of where we're at in this letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. Remember Paul planted this church about a dozen years before writing this letter. Paul writes it from a prison in Rome. He's under arrest, he's chained to a Roman soldier awaiting trial before Caesar. He is aware because of Epaphroditus from Philippi has brought to him a gift from the church. He's aware of two things that are particular situations that are going on in the church in Philippi one they are beginning to experience external opposition some suffering from those in the city of Philippi but secondly there is some internal strife some internal relational tension in the church and so Paul writes this letters uh, this this letter Uh, Last week we discovered that Epaphroditus, who brings Paul's letter back to the church in Philippi, actually had been so sick he almost died, but now he's recovered. He goes back to Philippi with this letter from Paul to these believers. If you were here last week, you remember that the text we looked at seems, at least on a surface, fairly mundane, just some travel um, plans from Paul. He says, hey, I want to send Timothy to you and I hope to come soon, but first I'm going to send Epaphroditus. But in the midst of that, we discover that there's actually something going on. Paul is, is uh, showing Timothy and Epaphroditus as models for the church in Philippi. He has been talking to them about how uh, he's been trying to address this relational tension in the church, calling them to put the interests of others ahead of their own interests. He said that they are to have the mindset of Christ in their relationships with one another. That is, Christ who left glory, who humbled himself, sacrificially served, loved, gave himself up for us, that they are to have that mindset in their relationships with one another. In order that, and he flashes it out, he says, do everything without grumbling and, and uh, arguing, without uh, grumbling and arguing, so that you might shine like stars in the sky. Paul is challenging the Philippians in their behavior, in their relationships, wanting them to get along well, wanting them to live out the mindset of Christ so that they bear witness as God's people in the city of Philippi, so that they shine like stars in the sky. That's where he's been going. And so in the text last week, Paul holds up Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples that they are to follow of men who have embraced that mindset, who are looking to the interests of others rather than their own. And so Paul commends them to the church that they would obey what he has called them to in this letter, that they would follow their example, that they would live as a church, as citizens of heaven in the midst of the citizens of Rome and Philippi. Now with those details regarding uh, the travel plans and what's going to happen next, dealt with Paul moves on to this passage where we risk getting... Uh, whiplash as we read it. Follow along as I read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. I want to uh, look at our text together. We're, we're, I'm going to speak to three things first, the imperative, second, the warning. And third, the declaration. The imperative, the warning, and the declaration. So first, the imperative. I have sometimes been teased, uh, well, by some of you too, but uh, specifically I want to talk about being teased by members of my family, my wife and my boys, regarding uh, aspects of my preaching. I have heard on numerous occasions that they say, we thought you were going to finish And then you kept going. We thought you were coming in for a landing, and you circled a few more times. I don't know. Perhaps some of you would agree with that. Um, It it seems, at at a first glance, here that that's what's happening here. Uh, Our text in the NIV it's translated further, but the the Greek word is actually the word finally. Uh, The the NIV changed it to further in their latest revision in 2011. The reason, this adverb uh, that is there, it, it, it means finally, and that has caused some confusion. It's caused as interpreting, in, interpreting this passage. There are a number of theories that people have actually come to. Like, Paul is, is going to wrap, wrap up things. Like, he, he says finally, except he doesn't. He's got another two chapters, he's halfway through his letter. So, some people come up with a theory well, maybe. Maybe there was some interruption. Maybe something happened. Paul was going to conclude. He said, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And then something happened. And so this, this uh, diatribe against the people that he unleashes, where we get this whiplash. Uh, that's one theory. Other people say, well, maybe, maybe what we have here in Philippians is actually two different letters that have kind of been sloppily uh, sewn together into one. And so Paul never wrote these things together, but this is the way it is. And I want to contend with you today that, that neither of those are necessary, that the text makes perfect sense if we will uh, just think carefully about what's going on here. Uh, Paul, Paul is not, when he says finally, it's, it's not finally as in he's wrapping up. That's not where he's going. What he means is, this is transitional, he has been... Remember, if you've been here through the study, right? The, the letter opened with some transitional things, his prayer report. He gave a report of what's going on in his life. He moved on to talk to the Philippians about what's going on in their life, calling them to have the mindset of Christ, to look to the interests of others. He's now shared about travel plans for Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself that are going to come there, help them. Everything's been focused on the, the Philippians uh, living out the way they're supposed to live out, caring for one another, putting the interests of others ahead. And so now those that issue that he heard about from Epaphroditus when he came to him, that's been dealt with. So so finally to move on to the other things I wanted to talk to you about is the sense. It's transitional. And so the NIV has translated it further, but it's it's as for the rest. So he's not. this is not some Paul was about to, to conclude and something happened. This is not some sloppily composed letter. No, he's like finally with those things dealt with, Let's move on to the other things that I wanted to address with you. Verse 1, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Here we come to the first imperative, the primary imperative of our text. Rejoice in the Lord. This is not the first place in this letter that we encounter this theme. In fact, the theme of joy, the theme of rejoicing is, pervades the letter. Back in Philippians 1 verse four, where Paul is, is sharing his prayer report, how he prays for the Philippians, he says, "In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel uh, In Philippians 1:18 he, as he's speaking about the gospel being preached, even where some people have uh, some people are doing it out of wrong motives, he says this, but wh- what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. A little bit later, Philippians 1.25, convinced of this, this is when he's saying that he thinks he will be released from prison, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Philippians 2.2, he, he calls the Philippians to care for one another, be like-minded. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Now, text just not that we looked at a couple weeks ago. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In last week's text, he said, "When Epaphroditus comes, uh, welcome him in the Lord with great joy." This theme of joy is something that has pervaded this letter. And it, it was something that we will hit yet in chapter 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The theme of joy is everywhere. And here in our text, it is commanded of us. It's an imperative. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, it might strike us as odd, perhaps, to command someone to rejoice, to have joy. I mean, I, I know as, as a father, I've said lots of silly things to my kids over the years. I've shared some of those with you, like this one, and I'm sure I'm not alone. You don't have to show your hands, but I, I've, I've asked my boys, you know, are you ever going to talk to your mother like that again? That's a silly thing to say, because probably they will. They need grace, just like I do. But, but I remember when my kids were little, and they'd be grumpy, and I'd try and cheer them up. I, you know, sometimes... I was happy. Sometimes I was unhappy with them for being grumpy. But, you know, stop being grumpy and smile. Uh, How likely is that to work? Right? Doesn't this kind of, like, rejoice! Be happy! Is that what Paul's saying here? Seems like a bit of an odd thing, perhaps. These believers are facing external opposition and suffering. Internally, there is relational tension... Not all is well. And Paul says, Hey, rejoice! It's important at this point for us to pause for a moment and think about joy. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. Happiness is based on the circumstances, happiness is based on what is happening in our lives. Steve Lawson writes this Happiness is entirely based on the circumstances of life, happiness is fleeting. Temporary and fragile. It is a moment-by-moment experience that can flee as quickly as it comes. As the word indicates, my happiness is based on my happenstance. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. And it's not happiness that is commanded here. It is joy. Rejoice in the Lord. And joy is not dependent upon our earthly life circumstances. John MacArthur writes, joy persists in the face of weakness, pain, suffering, and even death. So what exactly is Paul commanding here? Uh, The imperative is rejoice. And he actually adds a very, very important, a critical qualifier, uh, rejoice in the Lord. We are to rejoice in the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, joy is founded in a very large degree on sound doctrine. That is, joy is founded in truth. We need to believe what is true. We need to remember what is true if we are to rejoice. Joy is founded in sound doctrine. If we rightly understand what is true of us because of Jesus, we will have joy. The joy comes through the fact that through faith in Christ, we are in a relationship with God, that through faith in Christ, we are forgiven. All our sin, through faith in Christ, we are declared righteous, holy, pure. Through faith in Christ, we are adopted as daughters and sons. So that is what is true of us in the Lord, in Jesus. And so we rightly understand what is true, we will have joy. We, we will have peace. We will be people who are rejoicing, even when our circumstances are difficult. Lawson writes, when times are hard, the person who was happy becomes sad, even despairing or angry. Let me read that again. When times are hard, the person who was happy becomes sad, even despairing or angry. The person who was joyful remains joyful. Happiness flees in the hard times. Joy endures. This is the primary imperative of our text. This is the command. We are to rejoice in the Lord. So that leaves us with a critical question. Is my life, is your life as a believer in Christ, characterized by joy? If you don't yet have a relationship with joy, Jesus, your desire is for joy. And I want to say to you, you will only find it in Jesus. We can experience happiness in this life, but joy, the kind of joy spoken of here, the kind of joy that we're commanded to experience, will only come through faith in Jesus. Only when we're brought into a right relationship with God. It is rooted in Jesus. And so where our lives lack joy, where we find our emotions go up and down, the reality is there's hard things that we experience in life. We gather here every week, and many of us come from hard weeks. And there might not be a lot to be happy about, but we can have joy in Jesus, joy in the Lord. We can do what we're commanded to do, rejoice in the Lord. And as we lift our voices in song and we're reminded of God's great love for us and God's redemptive work in our lives, sending his son Jesus to bear our penalty, to die in our place so that through faith in him we might be adopted. As daughters and sons, we can call God our Father and we can know that that we are secure, that we are his then we can, as we gather, lift our voices in song even in the midst of life's difficulties and pain. We can rejoice, but we need to hold on to the truths of the gospel. We need to remember what is true about Jesus and us in Jesus. And look at verse 1 as Paul continues. He says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul moves on from this imperative, this command to rejoice in the Lord. And what he's saying here is that what he, what, what's about to follow, what he's going to say in a moment, is not something new. He has said this to the Philippians before. He perhaps, he's written this to the Philippians before. This is the same things. In other words, Paul is about to repeat a message that he has already shared with them. Paul asserts that it is no trouble for him to do so. Uh, That it's a safeguard for them. Now, it might be helpful for us to pause here and think about what that means. The ministry of the Word, the the study of Scripture, is not about novelty. Paul says, what I'm about to share with you, I've shared before. I've written before. It's no trouble for me to remind you. It's no trouble for me to say the same thing to you again. The ministry of the Word is not a word of novelty. The regular biblical command over and over and over again is remember, remember, remember. I just talked about this command to rejoice in the Lord. Well, how do you rejoice in the Lord in the midst of life when things suck? You remember. You're reminded. And so the the ministry of the Word is a ministry of reminding. Uh, Let me say this, the day that I stand before you and try and share something novel and new is the day you should send me packing. What you should say is, remind us of what is true. Remind us of the Gospel. Tell us again of Christ's love for us. Tell us again of what Christ did for us. And if you ever ask me to say something new or novel, it will be for me to resist and just keep reminding you. The ministry of the Word is a ministry of reminding, of remembering, of saying the same thing over and over again because we need, we need to be reminded of the truth of the Gospel. Alistair Begg writes this in this regard. He says, "Oh, There, there are days when we make fresh discoveries, And we rejoice in that, and and certainly when we first begin the pilgrimage of Christian living, everything is new, and every story has a dimension and a ring to it that dulls a little with familiarity. But what we need is the Spirit of God to come and bring freshness to stuff we already know, to let us see how much richer and how much more impactful is the truth of God's Word than we ever knew, to let us understand that our previous understanding of the Bible was comparatively superficial to what we have now been entering into. So, The Spirit of God will give us a deeper understanding. The Spirit of God will open things to us afresh. But he's opening not something new, reminding us of what is true. Unless we're new to the faith where everything is new, but but we're, we're hearing the gospel, being reminded of that. And so Paul says, it's no trouble for me to write to you the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Let's turn now from the imperative, rejoice in the Lord, to the warning. And here's where we're stopped in our tracks. This is is where the body blow comes and we go, where did that come from? My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to remind you to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. A bit jarring, isn't it? A, a bit jarring. Uh, what causes this outburst by the Apostle Paul? I, I mean, this is not very nice. It's not politically correct. Calling people dogs? Evildoers, mutilators of the flesh? I grew up in the church. I grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up with all those Bible memory assignments. Never was Philippians 3, two assigned. I'm thinking this would have been a verse that like Little boys could have learned like no sweat, right? Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I mean, you'd have it down cold quickly. It's the kind of verse that make little boys giggle. It was never one that was assigned to me. Let's look at the language. Paul begins saying, watch out. Watch out. This is a word of warning. He's concerned for the Philippian believers. He's concerned for the church. These people that he loves in Philippi. And so he warns them about a danger being posed by another group of people. And we'll get to them in a moment. Watch out. Be on guard. Be careful. And then he calls them dogs. Now some of you might be dog people. And by that I simply mean you you like dogs. Maybe you have a dog. You don't have to put your hands up. You know who you are. But, but when he, you know, for, if you're a dog person, you really like dogs, maybe you, you think, well, dogs is kind of a nice, you know, is it necessarily a, a derogatory term? Yes, it is. Paul is not trying to be nice. He's not thinking family pets, uh, not at all. Don't think loyal family pet. Think scavenger. Think diseased flea bag Here's what Gordon Fee writes. He says, the metaphor is full of bite, pun intended, since dogs were zoological lowlife scavengers that were generally detested by Greco-Roman society and considered unclean by Jews, who sometimes used dog to designate Gentiles. Okay, This is how Jewish people in that day referred to Gentiles, non-Jews, people who were not part of the people of God. They'd call them dogs. You might even remember that interesting exchange between Jesus and the, the Gentile woman, the Syropho- Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. Jews sometimes use that language to speak of Gentiles, non-Jews. Paul moves on from this derogatory term, calling them dogs, watch out for those dogs, to those evildoers, those who do what is wrong, those who are clearly sinning, those who are doing what is wicked before the Lord. Again, a term that the Jewish people would apply to non-Jews, Gentiles, evildoers. And thirdly, Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh. This is a derogatory way to refer to the rite of circumcision. For anyone unfamiliar with what circumcision is it, is, it is the cutting off of the foreskin at the end of a man's penis. And that is a rite that God gave to His people under the Old Covenant. You read about it in Genesis chapter 17. Every male was to be circumcised, and that was a physical sign of, that you belonged to the people of God. So every male Israelite, for, through the whole Old Covenant, the, old, old te- the whole Old Testament, this was an external physical sign that you belonged to the people of God. You were circumcised if you were male. And it wouldn't have been only a daily reminder for men, but for, for wives, for any women involved in childcare of young male boys. Like This was part of their life. This was... The sign of the covenant. This was circumcision. This is something God had instituted for God's people. This was was what marked you out as belonging to God. Bear that in mind as you read these words and realize that, that Paul speaks here of these people as mutilators of the flesh. Very derogatory. He's speaking to people who are saying, hey, circumcision is an ongoing important thing for us as God's people. And Paul uses this very derogatory language, warning his church, the church in Philippi, about these mutilators of the flesh. Who are these people that Paul is warning them against? Why is Paul warning them here suddenly, seemingly out of the blue? In a word, Paul is warning them against a group of people or a way of thinking called the Judaizers or Judaizing. And in short, these are Jewish Christians, people who have put their faith in Jesus. They've heard the message of Christ. They've believed in Christ. But they contend that it was necessary for Gentile Christians, that is, non-Jews who put their faith in Jesus, that to belong to the people of God, they also need to be circumcised physically, the men. That this is how they would be marked as belonging to God's people along with other Jewish boundary markers, lifestyle things, food laws, etc. At the heart of the matter here is these people argued that that faith in Jesus, they wouldn't have put it so bluntly, but their contention is basically that faith in Jesus is insufficient. Just trusting in Jesus is not enough. That to be a member of the people of God this to be marked out as belonging to God, you need to go through this physical rite of circumcision. It's not just trusting in Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus plus. In their world, it was plus circumcision. Now, I want to contend that there is no group of Judaizers in the church in Philippi, that, that the matter is not so dire here, but Paul is warning them against this propensity, this this message, because that message has dogged many of Paul's churches. And you can go to the the letter to the Galatians where it is front and center and they are in the church. Here he's simply offering this warning about this way of thinking. Jesus plus. This is false teaching. This is leading them away from the truth of the gospel, the sufficiency of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. Remember, Paul Paul. All this stuff that we've covered here, Paul has been calling the, the Philippians to have the mindset of Christ, to look to the interests of others so that, they, that their relationships within the church are as they are intended to be with, with each of them, humbly, sacrificially, loving, caring for one another so that they collectively can live as citizens of heaven in the colony of Philippi. So they will shine like stars for the advance of the gospel. Here... He's clarifying, he's reminding them, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel, and it's about Jesus. And there's this risk that, that anyone would come and contend that the gospel is anything other than Jesus, that it's, it's Jesus plus. It's the cross plus you need to be circumcised to be marked out as really belonging to God's people. You, you, need, to, you need to trust Jesus plus follow these Jewish boundary markers of the old covenant. This is not merely some difference of opinion on some trivial thing. This gets at the very heart of the Christian message, the gospel of Jesus, the good news, and Paul emphatically confronts it. And that's why this language is so jarring. He he wants to leave no space for this way of thinking, and so he warns these believers of this way of thinking that has attacked And shown itself in so many different settings where he has planted churches because this tendency is not uniquely theirs. It's something we face today, too. The temptation to say it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus worshiping him in the way that we do. Or it's Jesus plus, you fill in the blank. It's Jesus plus me getting some things right. The threat is real so Paul warns them. Third, we come to the declaration. Turn with me to verse 3. Paul carries on. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Remember, Paul is reminding the Philippian believers of the good news, the gospel, that through faith in Jesus, Through faith in Christ's sin-atoning death on the cross, that Jesus on the cross, that he became sin for us so that through faith in him we might become his righteousness. That that on the cross there's this great exchange. Jesus dies for our sin. Jesus pays the penalty for all the wrong we've done. And we are clothed with his perfection. We We are gifted with his righteousness, his holiness. We are adopted as daughters and sons All through Jesus. That's what Paul is is getting at. And look with me now at what he says. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. Paul includes himself. Now understand this, and we'll see this next week explicitly. Paul's going to go on and talk about his own life. Paul is a Jewish man. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. Okay. Paul is writing to a church that is largely, if not entirely, made up of Gentiles. So that would mean the men are not circumcised. They don't bear this mark of belonging to God's people. And Paul says, we, collectively, we are the circumcision. Jew and Gentile alike. How can he say that? Well, here's his argumentation in Romans 2. Paul writes this there. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So Paul says to these Gentile believers, those who've trusted Jesus, we together are the circumcision. Paul Paul is saying that what Mark's them as belonging to God is no longer this external physical mark of circumcision. It's not that. Now it is the inward presence of the Spirit as we who serve God by the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes into us. When we trust in Jesus, we are filled with the Spirit and we live as spirit people, those indwelt with, guided by, empowered by the Spirit of the living God. It is the Holy Spirit in us that marks us as belonging to God, not the external physical sign of circumcision. The Christian life, the life of following Jesus is a life guided by, empowered by the Spirit of the living God who indwells us. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. I find it so so rich to reflect on this again. Those of you familiar with the Old Testament story will remember Jacob when he runs away from his brother Esau. He's just taken his birthright Jacob is running for his life, and he lays down at this place and rests his head on a rock. And he has this vision, this dream at night. He sees heaven open and angels ascending and descending in that place. And he gets up in the morning, and Jacob names that place Bethel. The place of God's presence, Bethel. And and God's presence is this important theme that runs through the pages of Scripture. God delivers His people from slavery in Egypt and God's presence goes before the people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They come to Mount Sinai, the mount of the Lord, and God's presence is at the top of the mountain. Moses goes up and meets with the Lord, enters His presence. God instructs him to build a tabernacle, a tent. And they do that, and when they construct it and it's done and completed in the center of the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness, God's presence comes from Mount Sinai and it fills the tabernacle. Years later, under King Solomon, Israel builds a temple, a permanent place in Jerusalem. And when it's finished and they pray to dedicate it, God's presence fills the temple. And when God's people rebel and they fall into idolatry, And they go into exile. We read in the Old Testament prophets of God's presence departing. And then Jesus shows up. And he begins to call disciples, and and he calls Philip. And Philip runs off and finds his friend Nathaniel. And Nathaniel comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, Ah, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were still sitting under a fig tree. And Nathanael's blown away. Nathanael thought, like, what good can come out of Nazareth? But he's pretty impressed when Jesus says, I saw you when you're still sitting under the fig tree. And then Jesus says, you think that's amazing? He says, Nathanael, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference back to Jacob's vision. Jesus is saying, I am Bethel. I am now the place of God's presence on earth. That's why Jesus could say, tear down this temple, this place of God's presence, and I will rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his death and his resurrection, Jesus is the place of God's presence. He is where God is present on earth. And here's the truly amazing, amazing thing, that when we come to Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus now says this to us as the church, you are the temple. He says to you and I, you are the place where I am present on earth the Christian life, we are marked as belonging to God, not by externals like circumcision. We are marked as belonging to God because the Spirit of God indwells us, because where we are through Christ, the presence of God is. We serve God by His Spirit. Paul says, we boast in Christ Jesus. See, the Judaizers this line of thinking that threatened the church, said Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus a certain level of obedience to something. Jesus Jesus plus whatever. Therefore, they're making room to boast in something other than Jesus. Their salvation is their thinking, their understanding is, it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus plus this other thing. And Paul will have none of it. He says, no, we boast in Christ Jesus alone. We serve by the Spirit. We boast in Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. And when Paul speaks of flesh, he's not speaking specifically of, of human flesh. Creation is good. Our bodies are good. The creation around us is good. He's speaking about our performance for God. He's, he's saying we don't put confidence in, in what we can do in, in our performance. Think of the story of the prodigal son. This father has two sons and the younger son comes to the father and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. Essentially saying, I wish you were dead, but I'm not going to wait for that. Just give me what I have coming. And the son takes that money. The father gives it to him and the son goes off to a foreign land and he squanders it in sinful living. Prostitutes, you name it. And when it's all gone, he finds himself in a pigsty feeding pigs and he realizes that even his father's servants have plenty to eat and so he... He devises this story. He's going to go back and ask his father, just take me back as a servant. I don't deserve to be called your son. And as he's walking back, his father sees him. And his father runs to him. And he wraps his arms around him. And he throws a party. He has a calf, fattened calf killed. And this huge banquet. And a robe and a ring. And sandals on his son's feet. And just this great celebration. And the older son, the older brother comes from the field and he hears the music and he says to his servant, what's going on? The servant says, your your brother who was lost has been found and your father's throwing a huge party. And the older son gets angry. He refuses to go in, so the father goes out to him and here's what the older brother says. All these years, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeying your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. The older brother thinks he deserves something from God. That he's earned something. Because, Dad, look what I've done. I have obeyed you for years. I've slaved. He, He thinks that God owes him. He fails completely to understand his own need for God's grace, for his own need for God's mercy. He has put his confidence in the flesh. And that's a temptation that you and I have. To think that somehow by our right living, by our obedience, that by these other external things, God, and we fail... To remember, we lose sight of the fact that we come to God with empty hands, spiritually bankrupt, in desperate need of His mercy and His grace. That apart from His grace freely given, we have no hope. A bit of a teaser for next week. Paul concludes here though I myself have reason for such confidence, that is, confidence in the flesh, Paul doesn't actually have any confidence in the flesh, and we'll see that more next week. He's simply saying, hey, we don't put our confidence in the flesh, though I have reason to. I could if we're just thinking humanly. Come back next week. We are those who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Finally, my conclusion. Sorry, I did that on purpose. <laughs> I am landing. Not, I'm, I'm, just give me a minute. <laughs> Paul reminds the Philippians here of the gospel, of the good news that salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus anything else. Just coming to Jesus, throwing yourselves at his feet and say, Jesus, you are my only hope. The Christian faith... If you don't know Jesus, the Christian faith is not about doing more and trying harder. It's it's not about cleaning yourself up and then coming to Christ. It's, It's coming as you are, saying, Jesus, I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need what I can only receive from you. Paul reminds these believers whom he's calling to live to shine like stars in Philippi, he's reminding them now of the gospel for which they are to seek to advance. They can't lose sight of this. If they lose sight of this, if they add to Jesus, Jesus plus anything, then they've lost their way. So he reminds them, for it is we who are the circumcision. It it, it is we who live by the Spirit of God that, that we who boast in Christ Jesus alone and who put no confidence in the flesh They are the people of God in Philippi. They they are the people of God through the work of Jesus on the cross. Therefore, therefore, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. No no matter what's going on in your life, no, no matter what difficulties you are walking through, no matter what opposition you are facing, rejoice. Rejoice because through faith in Christ you have been redeemed. Rejoice because through faith in Christ you are forgiven and cleansed and pure. Rejoice because through faith in Christ you are declared righteous and holy. Rejoice because through Christ you belong to the Father. Your future is secure. So rejoice in the Lord. Do we rejoice in the Lord? Do we glory in Jesus? Do we... Do we boast in Christ alone? I want to read two paragraphs from Alistair Begg that I find very challenging and encouraging. He writes this. In those dying moments at the end of the day, before you fall asleep in that little window of opportunity when you can often think about things in life and death, if you think in that instant... You know, maybe when I put my head on the pillow tonight, this will be the last time that I ever have opportunity for life. Maybe my next appointment is before the bar of God's judgment. In that moment, when you think that way, what do you say to yourself to bolster your confidence as you fall asleep? Now, let me tell you, be careful. Because if what you say is, I've had a very good week, I have done this, I've done that, I've done the next thing, and after all, and so on, and and therefore I can fall asleep. I've had a good week. You know what? You better not fall asleep. You better get up and go walk around your house, because I'll tell you what, you're relying on the wrong thing. Because here's the real deal. Before you fall asleep and you think about your life, you say, I've had a lousy day. In fact, this is the fifth lousy day in a row that I've had but I'm going to fall asleep. And if I sleep the sleep of death, I will wake up in the presence of Jesus. Why? Because of what another has done, not because of what I have done. Rejoice in the Lord. Boast in Christ Jesus alone. Glory in Christ Jesus alone. Amen. Worship team.